Voice Nation. Greetings and salutations, Device Nation. You're home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is Medical Device Sales with ideas, stories, and interviews to help take you from good to great. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of Otto Afranc in times of Homer Simpson. And that's a clue to today's guest. You're going to want to stick around for that. I hope you're having a great day. hope you had a great week. I know I did. Today is going to be an exciting show. We're going to continue to build on the foundation of the house. We talked about that last week. What is the foundation of this house called the medical device rep? I firmly believe that word is humility, the most exciting word in the world, right? Make yourself less. Really sexy stuff doesn't sell a lot of conferences, but it is so critical. So we're going to look at some practical applications of that. What does that mean to you leaving your house this week uh, going to cover cases? And we're going to finish it up with an awesome interview with Dr. Tony Headley. If you don't know this gentleman's name, you need to. He's been uh, involved in so many things over the years. He is the shoulders um, that many of us stand on in this space, and I know you're going to want to hear what he has to say. So humility, a modest or low view of one's own importance. Humbleness. Oh, we just love this. That modest or low view. You know, it's amazing how many segments of our career touches on this word and how the absence of this word can be the one thing standing between you and success. And we're going to just take it bit by bit. We're going to eat this elephant one bite at a time. I'm having breakfast the other day with a dear friend of mine, a surgeon I worked with for many, many years up in North Carolina, and we were just catching up on a lot of different things. He had just got back from a church he went to locally, and he said the pastor had made this statement about uh, the concept of listening to understand versus listening to respond. I thought, that is profound. I had to share it with my audience. I immediately took a card out and wrote that down. So here we are, listening to understand versus listening to respond. So last week, I shared with you the story of the nurses just going at it about the issue du jour on TV or Facebook or social media right now. And there was absolutely no listening to understand at all going between these parties. It was just waiting for the other person to shut up so then they could insult the other person. And it was so ironic that I did that episode, we talked about it, and a case came around on Tuesday, and there I was in the middle of it again, positioning myself for retreat, because as a rep, I don't want to be part of that. I got out of there, but I've been pondering that uh, this week. Are we listening to understand or are we listening to respond? Now, what does that have to do with humility? Well, it has everything to do with humility, because humility, by lowering my posture, means I want to hear what you have to say. The opposite of humility is narcissism, uh, conceit, and pride, which is basically just waiting for you to be quiet so then I could tell you what I want to say. Now, I'm sharing this in context of people arguing, but I'm telling you that we do this in sales calls all the time. We can ask the customer a question, and then as they're talking, all we're doing is just waiting for them to stop talking so then we can say something else. We're not listening to a word they're saying. The tragedy in that is that they could be potentially telling you something that is giving you the keys to the kingdom, and you're going to miss it because you're not really listening. So what's the point? The point is we need humility 
because humility can put us in a position to listen, to truly understand. It keeps us out of trouble with people arguing, but it also helps us in our selling activities because we are an active listener. We are an active listener. We're not just listening to respond, waiting for a pause in the space so that we can just burp out whatever it is that we're just feeling, oh, I got to say this. I have to say this. This is a challenge for me. So I'm not I'm not sitting up here on some lofty perch telling you all what to do. My struggle is my mind just goes all over the place sometimes. And I had a situation one time when my wife was telling me something very important. I needed to hear it. I zoned out. I started thinking about other things. I got distracted. I was thinking, oh, you know, do I have rights or lefts for tomorrow? And did I order stems? I don't remember. And then I think she asked me something like, so what do you think of that? And I just had no answer. (laughs) And it didn't go well, but we got through it. I was not listening to understand. I was not listening to understand. I was just biding time, right? Biding time. We can do that as well. But humility is making that other person more important than we are, which means we put all distractions out of our mind. We put everything that's in the queue that needs to be said next, we just put it on the ground and bury it. And all we're doing is looking them in the eye and listening. This is an art, and it's a discipline. It's a discipline that takes practice. So I don't normally give out homework assignments, but I'm giving us all one, and I'm giving me one in the middle of this. Let's work on that. Let's practice at home. Practice with your friends. Practice with your spouse, your significant other. Let's just practice this week listening to understand and not just listening to come back with something. And I'm going to tell you that part of this homework assignment is you're going to have to disconnect from social media at some level because it's horrible training. Now, I'm not your dad. I'm not your mom. I'm not your life coach. I'm none of these things. But I'm just telling you as a friend to a friend that the only thing going on in social media right now is listening to respond, waiting for somebody else to shut up on Twitter so that somebody else can insult them. And when we play in that field, we can easily carry that habit or that mode of, uh, of exchange into the public square, and it's not going to help you. It is going to work against you, as a matter of fact. So for me, for me, I- I'm having to get away from that because I need to listen to understand. I need the ears being on, and I don't need that mechanical... You know, it's like it's like golf. You know, you're just trying to create muscle memory. I don't need that muscle memory that social media puts in me of listening to respond. Because if I immerse myself in it, it seems like that's what comes out the other end is more of that where I'm really not listening. Uh, I'm just waiting to come back with something. That's not humility at all. It's not humility at all. So let's work on that this week. And I'm right there with you uh, working on it as well. Dr. Headley is just amazing. This guy's won the Ottawa Franck Award, the Charlie Award. Uh, it's just been noted in so many things. I think since the uh, best doctors in the U.S. rankings have come out since 92, he's been in it every single year. He has things to tell us that you need to hear, and you'll want to take some mental notes. So let's welcome to the show Dr. Tony Headley. Thank you. 
Sir, I've been following your career for a long time, and you've done a lot of amazing things on the design side, implant side, instrument side, uh, even a lot of cases that I've seen you do on ViewMedi. But I'd like to take just a moment to go back, and let's just see how we got from from South Africa to to Arizona. So tell me a little bit about uh, about your journey. Yeah, well, um, the, the journey actually began... Uh, as an idea in my mind, uh, when I was in the military, actually. Um, and uh, I went to the military after high school and before med school. And uh, I made a decision during those months um, that uh, South Africa was not going to be my permanent home. Uh, I was not a fan of apartheid. And uh, eventually, you know, I decided to uh, take advantage of, of the system and do med school, which I did in Johannesburg at Witz, and it was very good. Uh, it was a very, very solid, uh, good uh, education, and I, I learned a lot, obviously. Um, my dad was an engineer, both civil and mechanical. So the uh, I guess the in- inventiveness stems from there. Um, anyway, uh, as I said, I went to med school and was a six-year med school, at the end of which uh, I left South Africa and went to London to St. Thomas's Hospital, where I became a senior assistant uh, slash fellow uh, to Alan Apley. Uh, Alan Apley uh, it was world famous. He wrote uh, a couple of textbooks and, and so on, and he became my mentor in London. Uh, it was kind of amusing, actually, because uh, we went to the operating room, and I distinctly remember the first one of his patients that we we're going to operate on. Uh, she was the wife of the governor of Sri Lanka. Um, and anyway, I can't give you more details than that, but she needed a hip replacement and uh, got her on his side. And Ellen was on the business side of things and uh, took the reamer and uh, put it into the acetabulum uh, at least 45 degrees or more in the wrong direction. And, <laughs> yeah, you know, I kind of looked at him and I said, no, Alan, uh, this way, this way, this way. And he looked at me and he said, Tony, come to this side of the table. And I did. And I finished the case for him. And that was the last time, <laughs> the last time I ever saw him in the <laughs> operating room. It was, it was hilarious because <laughs> I would do his cases for him. And he would be waiting in the recovery room and say, well, Tony, how did we do today? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Ellen was a delight and a, a highlight of my stay in London. Anyway, I, I uh, worked at St. Thomas's Hospital for, for a year. And uh, what was boiling down the road for me was a true fellowship uh, at UCLA with Harlan Amstutz. And... Uh, 
after my year at St. Thomas's in London, uh, I moved to uh, to Los Angeles and to the uh, hospices of UCLA. Um, wonderful experience. Uh, Harlan Amsatz is an inventive man. Uh, he has many ideas, and as you know, he was the, the uh, protagonist for uh, surface replacement, um, uh, which I did a number of. Uh, I can tell you that uh, the surface replacements that I did at UCLA uh, was the, the most perfect series of hips I've ever done. They all failed. <laughs> uh, they all failed in the usual fashion you know uh, big head thin plastic uh, osteolysis plus plus loosening and so on so they all failed and, and uh, kind of changed my mind about surface replacement um, metal to metal surface replacements haven't really replaced the metal to polyethylene it's brought along with it its own problems, and I think we all know what those are. Anyway, I, I finished my fellowship at UCLA, uh, and then they asked me to stay on uh, in the ranks of the assistant professors, which I did. Uh, and uh, really, really wonderful time. I, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, teaching uh, students uh, and young up-and-coming surgeons uh, really had a ball. I had had an advantage in Africa but doing a lot of trauma. Uh, did a lot of IM rods and, and in fact I did uh, uh, a couple of hundred uh, tibial rods um, and the the practice that I I got in in South Africa surgically stood me in great stead because when I when I was at UCLA I was able to teach the med students and that quite a lot and uh, they liked being in the operating room with me uh, as did the junior staff so I was at, a, at an advantage there uh, I had also had uh, training and, and a lot of experience with the AO techniques and when the AO people were really out of Switzerland, um, <clears throat> when I first got to UCLA, they were treating fractures of the femur uh, in traction. And I said, no, 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 this is not going to do. And uh, started rotting femurs and, and pleased everybody. Uh, I was the first one at UCLA to, to uh, bone graft an open wound. Uh, it was a compound fracture uh, of the lower end of the tibia, and I got a lot of oohs and ahs out of that one. Um, but it became an accepted technique. You know, we bone graft the defect, and, and even if it's open, leave it open, and at a later date, skin graft on top of that because it becomes vascularized. Anyway, uh, long story short, I had a... a a great stay at UCLA that I enjoyed. Uh, I enjoyed my my uh, colleagues, uh, and I certainly enjoyed uh, working uh, with Harlan Amstutz, who was 
really a good a good mentor and and uh, uh, disciple. Um, he worked uh, his bioengineering uh, lab was run by two uh, important people, uh, Ian Clark, who I believe is still around, uh, and Keith Markov. Uh, and both of those guys were the engineers uh, in, the, in the bioengineering department where uh, my fellowship uh, began. Uh, my fellowship at UCLA was bioengineering uh, primarily. And uh, uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful year. Uh, thereafter, of course, I was back to, to uh, clinical orthopedics, uh, teaching the students and doing what, what staff members do in an orthopedic department. Um, and had a lot of experience with my colleagues who I thought were, uh, were excellent. So um, I had a very rich uh, stay at UCLA. I became a little impatient with the bureaucracy uh, at UCLA because at best I could get two cases done in a day. And I sincerely wanted to do more than that. And I had also, uh, unfortunately, um, split with my wife. And I, I decided uh, I was going to leave Los Angeles, uh, and I did that uh, at the invitation of Joe DuPont uh, in Phoenix, who asked me to join his practice and help him with the uh, research center here, the Harrington Research Center, which I, I did. I brought a couple of my projects and uh, camped in at the Harrington Research Center and went into private practice with Joe. Uh, and that was back in, uh, uh, oh, that would have been 80, 81. My move to Phoenix, uh, uh, my transplant to Phoenix was finally completed uh, in 1982, when I was firmly uh, in, the, in the practice with Joe and his Stu Phillips and and so on. Uh, a really good time. Good time. Um, and I stayed on uh, at St. Luke's in that same practice uh, until two years ago when things became very unpleasant thanks to the new owners uh, of, the, uh, uh, of the department. It was not a, not a scene that I enjoyed and I and my colleagues elect, elected to leave, which we did. We joined a Brazo, uh, who have lived up to all of their promises. So it's a business as usual, or as usual as the coronavirus will allow. Uh, I've, done a, I've done a lot of si sitting and uh, hate that. But uh, uh, the, the ambience and the, and the surroundings... Uh, where we're at now is terrific. Uh, I really am uh, all in favor of it. I'm, I'm very happy with the, the environment. Uh, I'll give you an interesting aside. Um, I had a gal by the name of Lee Breslauer who uh, kept all my data. And she 
kept, I had sheets made for hips and knees and odd stuff, but primarily total hips and total knees. Lee Breslau kept all the stickers for all of the total knees and hips that I did. And when I left uh, St. Luke's Hospital, she gave me a cruiser and said, all of your cases uh, are on the cruiser. Turned out that I had done 13 and a half thousand cases at, uh, uh, at St. Luke's. So quite a handful. Not quite as busy anymore because of one thing or another, but uh, had some very busy times and worked with some very, very nice people. I started the fellowship when I I started at at, uh, St. Luke's and have taught uh, 54 fellows. Uh, And your, uh, your referral to me was one of them. And I can tell you, Having a fellowship has been one of my greatest pleasures. We, we have become friends, and almost wherever I go in the country, there's a fellow. And generally speaking, they all do very well in their communities. So uh, it's, a, it's a very, very endearing and positive uh, experience, and I, I still have fellows. Uh, and enjoy immensely uh, teaching the younger people. So that about wraps it up. I have it on good authority that you were in the military at one time. Tell me about that experience. Um, The military experience I had was, uh, I guess most military experiences are the same. We were not really involved in major conflict. Uh, I was in the artillery, and interestingly enough, I wound up in the Natal Field Artillery, uh, which was exactly the same regiment that my father had been in in WW2. Uh, quite a coincidence. Um, and in fact, I was in the uh, officer's mess one day, uh, and a head appeared around the serving hatch, and it was the uh, sergeant major. And he said, sir, may I come and join you? Because they, they kept the, the non-commissioned officers separate from the commissioned officers. And he said, may I join you? And I said, absolutely. And he came through, and it was Sergeant Major Kruger, looked at me and kept looking at me, and then he said, Headley, huh? He said, uh, I know your father. And I looked at him. He said, your dad and I were together in the Western Desert in the beginning of WW2. And then I traveled with the regiment and your father to Italy and uh, my dad and uh, spent six years uh, serving in the military in WW2. Um, So Kruger had a lot of things to tell me. (laughs) Delightful man. Same unit. That's just amazing. Isn't it? Yeah. And Kruger, yeah, was was the uh, the sergeant major for my dad. Uh, yeah, really a coincidence and and uh, kind of made the, the stay in the military a little easier. <laughs> your, uh, your passion for teaching is so apparent in your videos. I, I was watching some of the stuff you were doing on ViewMedi and 
the turn-up, turn-down procedure for DDH and uh, that invaginated distal femoral allograft. And I, I, I couldn't help but say to myself, this is a teacher trapped in an orthopedic surgeon's body. <laughs> Don't you believe it? There's lots of opportunity in orthopedics to, to teach um, and be inventive. Uh, I've enjoyed all of the things you just mentioned, I must say. Um, the turn-up, turn-down, uh, even if I said myself, uh, is a wonderful procedure. I can't imagine any other procedure for a high-riding DDH. Um, and we've had such good results. Uh, I don't see many of those kind of cases anymore, but we've had wonderful results with the turn-up, turn-down. Um, and then more recently, they asked me to do the commentary for the uh, direct superior that I did uh, <laughs> with my colleague in uh, uh, Palm Springs, um, Dr. Roger, wonderful guy. Uh, so I had a lot of fun with that. But uh, yes, I, I enjoy teaching and certainly uh, have had an opportunity to to do a lot of teaching of good things. I want to talk about that direct superior for a second, because that got my attention as a Zimmer rep. We went through a, a time in our company's history when the two incision hip was uh, what was being promoted. And the STEM aspect yeah. of that procedure was very familiar to me as uh, kind of a, a close cousin of the direct superior. Tell me, um, tell me a little bit about it, the advantages of it, and you know, is it technically really difficult to do? Or, You know, I have done every approach to the hip known. Uh, Smith-Peterson, direct superior, uh, anterior, posterior, I've done them all. And I am totally enchanted by the direct superior for primary hips. The, the one thing about the direct superior uh, that is a real plus, uh, it is extensile. So if you start with a direct superior and things are getting out of hand or you're doing a revision, you just extend your incision and bingo, there you have a normal posterior approach. So from the uh, uh, just just from the, the ability to change horses in mid, midstream, the direct superior is fabulous. Now, I, I think, and I'm saying this with, with a lot of experience of different approaches, I think the direct superior is probably the finest approach to the hip I've ever seen. I went to help Doug Roger down in Palm Springs. He came back uh, and did one the next day. Uh, and I went to make rounds, and the patient's bed was empty. And I thought, oh, God, I've killed a woman. <laughs> uh, she was up and walking and went home the same day. Uh, and, you know, it's a very elegant uh, uh, approach. The only muscle cuts, if you want to call them that, uh, is taking down piriformis and the uh, obturator uh, tendon which gets put back as part of the closure. The rest is just a gluteus maximus split. Uh, take down the two tendons, open the capsule. You get an excellent view of, of the acetabulum. And the thing that I think is 
absolutely remarkable is the exposure of the femur. Uh, because you're at the back, uh, you flex the hip up a little, drop the foot over the side of the table, and you are looking straight down the canal. It's a wonderful approach uh, for, the, for the femur. And you don't hit the problems that you encounter with a direct anterior. Um, because you've got to, with a direct anterior, you have to go around a corner. Well, with this direct superior, there are no corners. It's a straight shot uh, with your reamer, straight shot with your brooch. And uh, it's most unusual to have femoral uh, complications. So it's turned out to be, uh, I think, an absolutely superb uh, approach that is atraumatic. Uh, it's been a long time since I had to transfuse a patient. Uh, and uh, pain management is relatively simple. We have no precautions, uh, have had no dislocations. Uh, and that's quite a track record. So uh, I'm obviously a big fan of the direct superior. One of my favorite hip stems that I have ever sold within this company has been the the anatomic stem. It was a right and left uh, proximal uh, mid-coat design. And yeah. that means automatically I'm a big fan of your citation. I think you did a great job with that stem. I love that lateral machining assembly. Um, you've yeah. got to be proud of that stem. I am, and I, I can't take sole uh, claim on that. I had a tremendous amount of help from Phil Noble, the bioengineer, uh, and uh, together we were able to create the, the citation, and I still do it. Yeah, I think it's a great stem. I'll never forget the first time a striker rep ever showed that in my territory. He came out of the lounge. Just it looked like a bloodbath, and those those rasps on that system were so sharp. It just completely sliced him up uh, doing a demo. I think he got a lot of. Oh, I, I think he got some uh, sympathy points on that. But uh, that was that was quite a sight to see. Yes, I bet it was. Let's talk about knees for a second. I'm under the impression that you were involved in uh, the triathlon. I've been involved in these since the PCA days, back in 1982. Uh, and it was then PCA, then Modular, and it, it's evolved from the PCA finally to the triathlon. Uh, and uh, having very, very good results uh, with, the, with the triathlon. Uh, yeah, I'd like to talk about triathlon in just a minute, but I want to go back to the PCA. You know, there's all this uh, chatter in our space about uh, unsubmitted knees, and it's it's kind of making a resurgence of sort, but uh, it's going back to the future, isn't it? I mean, I remember the PCA with the beaded implants, and, and yep. they seemed to be yep. doing – they were doing well back then, as I recall. You know, it's been a long time since I cemented a hip and knee. Uh, Along with the uh, uh, the robot, uh, the majority, if not all, of my knees are cementless, and I have been very, very happy. Uh, the The fixation has been great, uh, and we've had very, very few complications. So uh, I think I, I think more and more people will get confidence enough to do uh, cementless knees. Uh, it, as you said, maybe back to the future, 
but it sure as hell works in my hands. Didn't even ask you, are you going cementless on the patella as well? Yes, I, you know, I am guilty of having done uh, cementless patella for years. Uh, I had uh, a series of, I think, 600-something that I wanted to write up, and I was vetoed because the, it's uh, off-label, uh, or it was off-label. So I wasn't allowed to give all my numbers. I had to report on you know, uh, a hundred instead of six hundred. Uh, I've had very good success. It's the current design is good. The earlier designs needed a lot, of, a lot of help. The the big fall was the fixation of the plastic to the metal backing. Uh, that was an engineering uh, faux pas uh, because the plastic would dissociate from the metal backing. Uh, and then you have the metal backing uh, articulating with the femur. And uh, the Australians uh, coined a term when you've had metal on metal because of a failed patella uh, and you open up the knee and everything's black. Uh, the Aussies called it Molina knee. And boy, they were right too. Anyway, those days are over. We don't have the same problems. Uh, I know that Dick Scott uh, put put the uh, hex on metal back patelli uh, because uh, of his failure rate, which was not his fault, but a design issue. And I, you know, I think uh, a lot of those fundamental problems uh, have been taken care of. So I am a believer uh, in metal back patelli that do uh, extremely well. And the beauty of a metal back patella is you can even put that device on a very thin patella. Like if you do a revision and you've got, uh, you know, three or four millimeters of bone, you can still do a metal back patella, even if the pegs stick out a little bit in the anterior cortex. Uh, as long as you've got ingrowth, you've got a, you've got a viable articulation. So I'm a, I'm a fan. Let's uh, let's talk about the triathlon knee. Uh, Two thousand five, uh, Stryker released that knee, and and you know at that time that uh, most of the other systems on the market had been out a while, and this was kind of the the latest and greatest thing at that time. Uh, yeah. I know you've got an, and I'm going to digress here for a second, but I know you have an art background, and I know you've got an eye for things. I got a compliment. Uh, I don't know how much you played a part in this, but there was a real design aesthetic going on with that knee system. The the soft touch handles, the selective uh, nitriting of things, uh, you know, buttons were gold and uh, even the trays that the instruments came in. I mean, it was uh, it was quite a uh, quite a job that they did in terms of the look and feel. And I think that. That gets lost sometimes in, in instrument design, but uh, I got to say, right. well done. Well done. You know, uh, one of the keys in, in the design of the triathlon uh, is the patellofemoral joint. And I happen to be very proud of that because that was a carryover from the, the modular, from its predecessor. Uh, and it was something that I worked very hard on because uh, I think a bad patellofemoral articulation causes uh, a block uh, to flexion. Uh, the flexion isn't good, etc. And uh, the, the way things have turned out, the patellofemoral joint with the triathlon 
is excellent. If you look where the patella sits, when you flex the knee, it's sitting right where you want it to, and that's in the notch. And there is articulation uh, between plastic and metal, even in deep flexion. And, uh, you know, I think that's one of the, the big points about the uh, triathlon patellofemoral joint. I uh, I felt like I was watching the PBS show, The Woodwright Shop, uh, the other day, seeing you do that that massive invaginated uh, distal femoral allograft uh. on on Viumetti. So I got to ask this: I need I need the I need the follow up, the patient follow up. Well, you know that patient that we used to demonstrate the procedure uh, is the mother of uh, a pair of. Uh, country singers, uh, and she is still alive. She works as a waitress in a local uh, country and western bar. Uh, she is on her feet all almost every day and doing well after all these years. So it's a, has been quite remarkable, um, and uh, she's very happy. Very happy. I, I've worked with many a surgeon over the years that have kind of transposed their orthopedic skills uh, into a wood shop in their backyard. And when I was watching you do that procedure, <laughs> I, I felt like uh, that you have that same skill set that I've seen in in these surgeons that I'm describing. Do you do you have a wood shop at your house, and and do you mess around with that? I'll give you. I'll I'll tell you the secret. When I was a kid. My grandfather um, used to give me tools, uh, and every birthday and every Christmas that came along, he would give me a new tool, and he paid for woodworking lessons uh, along with what I got at uh, in junior school. So I had a lot of encouragement uh, to do that, and it's paid off. Uh, there are things that I learned in the woodshop that have served me extremely well. Dr. Barron said something recently that's been rolling around in my head uh, a lot lately. He said that joint reconstruction is not just about metal and plastic anymore. And I was just wondering, what are your thoughts on the advent of uh, robotics in this space, uh, where it's at now, where you, where you see it going? You know, I have to tell you, I was very skeptical in the beginning about the robotics. I said, eh, you know, it's another layer of, uh, of stuff you've got to think about. In that war. The, uh, the robot uh, that I'm involved with uh, does exactly uh, what they said it would do. And, and what it does do, I think the, the, the contribution from the robot is not the actual uh, cutting of bone. Although, you know, that is... Uh, obviously going to be all perfect. Uh, what you do with the, the, the uh, CT scan and the computer preoperatively tells you where your cuts are going to be, et cetera, et cetera, and it allows you to preoperatively plan balancing. And uh, I look at a lot of, um, I have partners that do a lot of, a lot of robots, and when I look at the post-ops, the knees are appropriately straight. Uh, they are balanced. Uh, they they work well. Uh, I, I think the vast majority of them are cementless because the bone cuts are about as near perfect as you can get them. 
So there are, there are a lot of pluses. Uh, I don't think people should become intimidated uh, by the robot. It's, a, it's an asset to be shared, and uh, it does contribute a lot to the outcome of the patient. I've seen a lot of presentations you've made on on some really interesting cases. Is there one case in your career? I mean, I know it's hard to stratify all this stuff, uh, but is there one case in particular that just stands out that was uh, uh, just very notable to you, whether it was an outcome or a creative way to get out of the OR or, uh, you know, <laughs> any any thoughts? Well, as I told you, 13,500 uh, joints, it's hard to pick on one, but, uh, um, you, you know, you mentioned that invaginated graft. That was, that was uh, kind of a one-off kind of deal, I must say. Uh, I've had a great deal of pleasure with the turn-up, turn-down, because if you do it right, there's no other way to do it, uh, frankly, and the patients do extremely well. I, I, I see a number of these people come back to my office for follow-up, and you know, I'm going back 15, 16 years uh, or even more with uh, uh, some of those patients. Uh, and the majority of them are happy. Um, I must say the the uh, the stem that I use is the SROM. It's modular. And I, I don't think you could use any other stem. Uh, the whole idea of the modularity allows you to put the proximal femur where you want it, uh, rotation-wise, uh, and uh, the stem, uh, you know, is basically an IM rod. Uh, it, it's, I think, it's been the uh, prosthesis of choice for the turn-up, turn-down. I'm seeing more and more surgeons integrate uh, dual mobility into their practice. Uh, prior spine yeah. surgery, maybe an autofuse uh, spine situation, or, and I was actually thinking about that DDH case. Is that, is that a situation where you were considered dual mobility or what's your, uh, what's your threshold for having one of those implants opened on your table? My threshold is I have, you know, I've had a minimal experience with it and uh, it has clear advantages. I think it's good. You know, I, I kept the indications to, to revisions and 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 other issues like spasticity and so on, uh, and they've all done well. So I I have no problem if somebody said to me uh, they would like to do a dual mobility. I think it's it it's fine. Just do it right. <laughs> I, I was going down memory lane this morning, uh, just reading a, a history of hip replacement. It was an article I put on LinkedIn and. Uh, there was just so many inspirational pioneers in that read that uh, that I it was good to remember some of it because I've heard it my whole career. Uh, the Austin Moores, the Doctor Afranc, uh, the Jude brothers, McKee Farrar. Uh, I could just yep. go on and on. Who, who has been you know your primary inspirations in the the reconstruction space over the years? Wow, I don't know if there's any one particular thing. You know, I. I won the Otto O'Frank Award from the Hip Society for one of my papers. And uh, uh, O'Frank, uh, I think, was a pioneer who inspired a lot of people. Um, not any one particular thing. You know, I had an interesting experience with Otto. Uh, we were at New England Baptist, and one of my colleagues was operating and doing a, doing a hip and uh, I was in the observation 
level uh, with Otto. Anyway, long story short, the guy uh, reams the socket and puts the socket in and everything. And uh, I think this was a dysplastic hip. Anyway, uh, the guy reamed the, the socket and put in the put in the implant. And Otto looked at me and he said, 25 degrees of retroversion. And we were standing 50 feet away from from the operating table. We looked at the post-op x-ray, and he was 100% right. Uh, that, you know, that old boy really knew his stuff. Uh, you know, and those are the kind of people that inspire you. There's no question about that. Dr. Zuckerman uh, had a paper out recently where he was just talking about the three A's of uh, practicing medicine in the orthopedic space. And the three A's were availability, affability, and ability. ability and yeah. I was just curious, to the surgeons that listen to this show, if if you were advising them on building a practice, you know, is there anything beyond those three A's that you think are, are important in the, the climate that we find ourselves in now? No, I, th- I, I quote the three A's a lot. And, uh, you know, I think... The, the one A that gets uh, ignored a little bit is affability. So, you know, some guys get a little grumpy and so on. And you really have to avoid that. You've got, your, your patient has to feel that you are 100% on their side uh, and that you're an ally rather than just being indifferent. Um, and, and that's the best advice. Ability obviously helps, but the patient's uh, not awake to see your ability, um, he, all your patient uh, is going to sense is the affability. And I, I think that that's something guys should remember and work on. Um, you know, be a, be a friend, be a mentor, etc. cetera. Um, and I love going to the uh, patient waiting room after surgery and saying to the family, things went really well. Uh, knowing that they did. There's a great deal of satisfaction in that. You've been asked so many questions over the years. There's a lot of interviews with you online, I noticed. And uh, and I know you've probably heard a lot of the same questions over and over. But here's one you may have never been asked. Um, what is your advice to people that work in my profession that are on the other side of your table with a laser pointer? Uh, that are responsible for putting these cases together for you, the the medical device reps that, that listen to the show. Do you have any advice to them? Well, you've kind of uh, you've kind of hit the nail on the head there. Laser pointer and attention and and uh, guiding help for scrub nurse or surgeon or whoever. Uh, the, the advice I give them is: don't be a stranger. Participate. Stand up as close to the table as you can and keep an eye on things. Uh, you get some of these rips who hang around in the background or, you know, you, you, you want to take an implant out of a box and the guy's nowhere to be found. Uh, that, that is not what I regard as good representation. So participate, I think is the, the key word there. What's next for you? I mean, you, uh, you got any projects that you're working on or anything you're excited about these days? You know, at my age, my project is just staying alive. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I, I had a surgeon that had some heart issues and 
and I never really appreciated it till I found out he had the heart issues because I would always say, uh, you know, it's good to see you, doctor, and he would say it's good to be seen. Yep. Yep. And uh, I, I understand that a little bit more now. Well, I have a little bit of that in me because I don't know whether you know this, but I had a lung transplant uh, five years ago, two double lung transplant. Um, I got a crazy condition called IPF, which is idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And I was fishing with my son down in New Zealand and getting really short of breath. And I thought, this is strange. You know, we were kind of scrambling along a river bank and he was way ahead of me and I I was having difficulty keeping up. So when I got home, I thought, you know, I, I need to have this looked at. So I went to see a friend of mine who is a pulmonologist who I've known for many years by the name of Cash Beechler, and uh, he did some some pulmonary function tests, got a CT scan and a few things, and uh, I went, you know, to find out the results, and he said, Tony, you have got IPF. Now, I was a non-smoker, okay, so uh, any lung issue uh, was not from cigarettes or uh, I was in the military, but was never exposed to anything like Agent Orange. So this just came out of the blue. And he said, you got IPF. And I said, well, uh, what's the story? He said, well, you can. it can just tick along with a minimal impact on you, or uh, it can suddenly worsen and you're in trouble. Well, that's what happened to me. I was operating in September. October, I was on oxygen uh, 24-7, and uh, uh, my PO2 was was disgusting. Uh, on five liters of oxygen, I was about 84, and if I took the oxygen off and went to the toilet, uh, it was about 30. I was in trouble, quite honestly. I was dying, um, and I had already been referred to the lung transplant unit at St. Joseph's Hospital. Uh, And uh, they'd ran some tests at the beginning of October, and they repeated repeated those in two weeks. And the guy looked at me and said, I'm moving you up in the waiting list. And I got a call a couple of days later, and the guy said, would you please come down to the hospital? Uh, I want to talk to you about a pair of lungs that we think may be appropriate. I never left the hospital. Uh, had the lungs and, and my PO2 right now, uh, as I'm talking to you, is 98. It's the best part of me. They did a, they did a fantastic job. Awesome. I worked, I worked yeah. with a nurse who never smoked a day in her life and didn't have any, uh, anything to suggest that this was going to be her, her path, but ended up with lung cancer, and uh, she's doing much better now. They've they've uh, been able to bring it under control, but she is convinced it was the bovi smoke. After all those cases, uh, standing right beside the surgeon, breathing it all in. Funny you should say that. I firmly believe that, firmly, because there's nothing else in my life that could have done it, and uh, I absolutely would echo that sentiment. Well, I'm glad you're on the mend now. Oh, hell, I'm mended. Don't worry. That was five years ago in October, and uh, things couldn't be doing better. Dr. Haley, you are truly uh, a man in full. 
And uh, I feel confident your face is going to be on the orthopedic Mount Rushmore one day. Uh, if and when it's constructed, <laughs> uh, I just wanted to just say a huge thank you uh, for your time and sharing your life uh, with me uh, and my audience. I, I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. We just spent 45 minutes in the presence of greatness. Uh, what an amazing man and what an amazing journey. If you want to see more about him, just Google his name and look at all the things his hands have been in this space for so many years. It's just incredible. I love that three A's thing, the availability, the affability, and the ability. We're going to open that up into a device-centric discussion in an upcoming episode, and I'm going to uh, just kind of unpack what those three words mean in this space uh, because it's inspired me to be thinking about that. Am I affable? What does that mean? Am I available? What does that mean? Got some interesting stories for you on that front. And ability, constantly working that craft. So let's work this week on listening to understand, work on it in your private space. So then that public space just follows so naturally. I'm going to work on that myself and I'm going to continue to kind of crowd out those voices that are wanting to put me in a mode of listening to respond because that doesn't help me anywhere. It doesn't help me in the break room. It doesn't help me with my wife. It doesn't help me with my children. It doesn't help me with my customers and nurses. Ad nauseum. I could just go on and on. It doesn't help. So we're going to get rid of things that don't help. I hope you have an awesome week. I hope everything goes your way this week. And I really appreciate you participating in the show as always. And uh, really look forward to next week. Got some amazing content uh, that I think is going to inspire you. And as always, uh, let's be strong, be smart, be positive, and with increasing COVID numbers, let's all be safe. Device Nation.